Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. I'm Max Reaper, the editor of Royals Review. Later on, we'll have Sean Newkirk and Matthew Lamar on to discuss the struggles of Adalberto Mondesi, plus what the Royals might do at the trade deadline. But first, we have a special guest. Craig Calcaterra has been a contributor to NBC Sports and now has his own newsletter called Cup of Coffee, which you can subscribe to at cupofcoffee.substack.com. And you can find daily news uh, of baseball news and opinions uh, uh, straight to your email box. So, Craig, thanks very much for being on today. Thanks for having me on, Max. Well, it seems like it's a good time to start a baseball newsletter because there seems to be a lot of news in baseball, uh, but lately it seems to be stuff that doesn't have to do with what's happening on the field. Uh, It seems like the threat of the coronavirus has kind of loomed over the entire season, threatening to end play at any time. Uh, We have seen a few outbreaks. Uh, The Cardinals in particular have had to postpone play for about two weeks now. Uh, but so far, they've continued through the se- about halfway through the season um, without having to have any major interruptions. What's what's kind of your take on how well baseball has handled playing during this pandemic? Uh, you know, I've been pretty critical about the specific things that they've done and said and the plans they have in place and everything. But whether it's because of those plans or because of good luck or, or whatever, they've, they've managed it pretty good so far. I mean, I'm not going to say this is great, but what's great this year um, you know, you, you've had certainly the Cardinals, as you mentioned, and the Marlins have had major disruption. Uh, we just got done with a, a minor disruption for the Mets over this last weekend that is going to lead to a lot of games in very few days for both them and some of their opponents. Um, but, you know, given the, the landscape we're in right now, given just how society has come to a screeching halt this year, the fact that we're even having baseball games is, is something of a, of a miracle. Yeah, and the, the Royals haven't had to postpone any games. We have had some players out for, for for certain games because of positive tests. And when we look back on the season, you know, we've had players opting out of the season completely. Some players have been unavailable due to COVID. It's a shortened season. Uh, we have expanded playoffs. Knowing that this is such a kind of crazy circumstance, when we look back at this year's champion or some of the records maybe that are set this year, uh, do, you, do you think people look back on this season with an asterisk, or do we, will we kind of, kind, of, kind of forget over the course of time? I, I think you have to look at it. I, I don't like to say an asterisk, really, because in, in some ways, there's a, there, I mean, there's certainly a negative connotation to that of, oh, that doesn't really count, um, in, in ways that, you know, it's happening, right? And, and we're enjoying games in the moment, and there are two ways to look at a season. There's always the, the top-down, bird's-eye view of, here's what's happened, what does it mean, where does it fall in the historical record. I think most people, especially you know, the type of people listening to this podcast, the type of people that are really interested in baseball analysis and analytics, we, we tend to fall in that kind of approach. 
But, you know, there's another side to baseball, and that's just the side that I think most fans, certainly casual fans, fall on. And that's the, I turn on my TV at 7, 7.30 in the evening, there's a baseball game on, I enjoy it in the moment. You know, we are getting that, and, and that's happening, even if the numbers don't add up, even if the circumstances are strange. So I don't want to discount what we're having. Um, but at the same time, to the extent we are going to try to contextualize it, we're probably going to look at it. I think the best way I've heard it referred to is this is an exhibition season. I mean, the numbers count, the career totals are going to count. Um, but this is just floating on its own in a weird space. If your team wins the World Series, especially if it's an unlikely team, say the, you know, the Miami Marlins put on a, uh, on a run and make the playoffs and somehow win the World Series, you, know, you can enjoy that. You don't have to say, oh, it doesn't really count. Um, but yeah, in the grand scheme of things, we're definitely going to always think of 2020 as that strange season. Yeah, I guess I am a little surprised just how normal turning on the TV and watching baseball is. I mean, there's no fans and we, you know, we have these cutouts in the background and pumped in, you know, crowd noise, but it still feels remarkably like a normal game. And, uh, you know, I guess that's to baseball's credit, or maybe I'm just so hungry for, for, you know, regular baseball that I'm willing to overlook a lot of things, but yeah, it's, it's. It's 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 a unique year, but I wonder how how much we'll remember that uh, years down down the road. I, I did want to ask you about some of the measures baseball did take this year to accommodate this weird season, namely like the expanded playoffs, things like the the, the runner at second uh, for extra innings. Uh, now they're going to do seven inning double headers. Uh, how do you feel about some of these rules that they've implemented, and do you think some of these could be here to to stay? I mean, in particular, you know, the universal DH. Uh, you know, that's been implemented for the National League. There's been a lot of talk that perhaps, uh, you know, this is something that owners have been pushing for for a while that could be here to stay. What, what do you think we'll be, we'll, we'll be taking away uh, permanently from the season? It's funny. I think the things that have caused, you know, my readers or, or fans in general or social media to get the most worked up about are the things that seem to be the least consequential in this year and maybe things that last the longest that, you know, everybody wants to fight about the DH. It's like we're born to fight about the DH, you know, <laughs> before you even know what baseball is, you have an opinion about the DH. But um, I, I really don't think even the most ardent anti-DH person can point at what's going on this year and say, oh, this is a disgrace. I, they're forgetting it most of the time. I don't think it, it really registers very much unless you look at some broad overall numbers about, you know, what the number nine slot in batting orders is hitting this year. Um, same with the runner on second. Aesthetically, do I like it? Not really, but I live in a AAA city, um, and I've been to a lot of games where, where they've done that over the past couple of years. It's really not that big of a deal. You get used to it pretty quickly. Um, I, I don't have a huge problem with it. I don't think most fans do in practice, even if they do intellectually. Um, the one thing that a lot of people just sort of nodded their heads at and said, okay, this is fine, uh, are the expanded playoffs, and this one drives me nuts. And it's going to have huge consequences, even if we only do it for one year. Um, you know, you've got 16 teams in the playoffs. I think even right now the, the Giants of all teams would qualify. They're, you know, as we're talking now, they're like 14 and 16 and are clearly at the bottom of a rebuild. And uh, they're, I think, technically a playoff team still, last I checked. Um, is that really great? Probably not. Maybe for Giants fans it's okay. But the bigger issue is, um, you know, we've got a trade deadline coming up in a few days. Uh, who's selling, right? Everybody's kind of in it. So is anybody selling? No. Um, but at the same time, even if there were sellers, are you buying if you have a greater than 50% chance of making the playoffs? This is going to have consequences. Who's going to want to uh, you know, improve their team dramatically 
if it doesn't really make a big difference. If you could be a number eight seed in the playoffs uh, by mailing in your offseason in the hot stove season, you're probably going to do it to save some money. And I think it's going to lead to uh, a lot of really mediocre baseball because uh, assuming we get the playoffs, assuming they happen this year, it's going to be a major cash windfall for Major League Baseball and the clubs. They're going to want to continue it. And, uh, you know, do, do you want to be hockey? Do you want to be basketball? I, I don't want that. One of the special things about baseball for me is that the regular season matters a lot. And uh, expanding the playoffs is taking us down the road to the regular season not mattering as much. Yeah, the, ex- the expanded playoffs is the one that kind of drives me nuts, too. And I'm more, of, I think, I'm more of a purist, too. But uh, it, it just, you know, this isn't like, you, know, you say, this, you know, we're going to be like basketball. When basketball, like the good teams beat the bad teams, what, you know, 80%, 90% of the time, baseball, you know, Bad teams beat good time teams all the time. It depends on pitching matchups. Depends on who's you know showing up that day. It, it depends on lineups. It's it's you're going to have a lot of mediocre teams beating good teams and knocking them out of the playoffs. And and the trade deadline, you know, you talk about like there's no there's no sellers right now. I think one of the things that really generates excitement in baseball is the trade deadline, and we've seen that just kind of evaporate the last couple of years because teams uh, because of monetary reasons the last couple of years aren't really making deals anymore. And and if you further tighten that. Uh, so that teams aren't making moves because there are not enough sellers. Uh, I mean, that's, that's really going to hurt the games. I, and, and I don't know, there's just a lot of reasons why I don't like the expanded playoffs. And I, I think once the genie's out the, out of the bottle, it just seems like they're not going to put it back in. <laughs> so unfortunately, yeah. it may be here to stay. So I, I don't know. I, I'm, not, I, I'm not a fan of that. But there, yeah, I think I agree with you. The rest of the changes I've made, I was you know, originally against the universal DH. Um, it's fine. You know, it, it's worked out pretty good i can't say i've really noticed any big change so uh, most of these things we, we tend to adapt to and who knows maybe even expanded playoffs all eventually kind of come around i think the biggest consequence of the universal dh is that uh play-by-play guys are no longer able to use the phrase he helps his own cause that's the biggest <laughs> loss we've had so far yeah i don't know i don't know if i want my son to grow up in a world where pitchers aren't jogging around the bases in jackets i mean that you miss something about not having that anymore uh well, you know, we talked about uh, the coronavirus kind of impeding the season, but the season also kind of struggled to get off the ground uh, because of labor issues uh, between owners and players over player compensation in a reduced season. And it seems like this season's battle was just kind of a preview of what will likely be a larger battle uh, next year when this uh, collective bargaining agreement expires. Um, kind of looking forward to next year, what do you see as the major issues that will be in play uh, between players and owners and how hopeful are you that the two sides can reach agreement without any kind of play being interrupted? Well, I'll, I'll take the second part of that first. Um, you know, everybody has thought that, okay, we're going to have World War III for the next collective bargaining agreement, and we still might. Um, but the bit that we had this year in, you know, May, June, July, with the Players Union and Major League Baseball trying to negotiate the terms of, of the 2020 season um, you know, that was a bit of a practice run that no one expected they'd have. And it was more acrimonious than I think most outside observers thought it would be. And, and a big reason for that is there's a, there's a different negotiating team right now in charge of the players union. They, they hired a, a new chief negotiator in Bruce Meyer, the guy who's going to be sitting at the table, um, you know, negotiating with Major League Baseball. He took a much harder stance with Major League Baseball than his predecessors had in the last few rounds. And, you know, the, and the reason he was able to do that was the bigger reason is there was much greater solidarity on the part of the players, um, you know, who were definitely more informed by their reps, definitely cared more than maybe some of their predecessors had in the past few rounds. So, so what that did is I think it shocked Major League Baseball, it shocked Rob Manford and the owners that, uh, you know, they're not going to get anything easy from the players like the last few rounds have gone. 
Um, there are two ways we can go with that. One way is, okay, the owners aren't going to, you know, sort of fart around like they have in the last few years and, and make some, you know, disingenuous proposals hoping that someone will fall for it or, uh, you know, try, try, to, try to just sort of bigfoot the players into taking, uh, taking uh, uh, things that, that the, the owners really want. That could have warned them, and it could make next year's negotiations a lot more fruitful and a lot more productive because everyone's taking it seriously. At the same time, it also could have just angered everyone <laughs> and, and meant that everyone's going to come out with their armor on and their blades sharpened. And, um, you know, I, I don't know which one it is, but, but I definitely think that what's going to happen next year is not what people were saying six months ago was going to happen next year. It's a new world based on the... Um, the negotiations we had this last spring and early summer, um, you know, but it is going to be, it is going to be gnarly. I mean, the biggest issue going out there right now uh, to your first point is probably going to just be the basic structure of, you know, player compensation. That's a huge thing. It hasn't been really negotiated since the seventies. The idea of this is how a player gets to arbitration. This is how a player gets to free agency. Teams have six years of control and stuff. Uh, the, the approach that teams have taken in the last few years has been to you know move away from older players, go towards younger, cheaper players. There are a lot of good reasons for that. There are also a lot of purely financially driven reasons for that. But what it does is it has taken the power away from the players, taken the lure of free agency away. Because once you're uh, you know you have your service time manipulated when you're a minor leaguer, then you play six years in the majors, and you're say you're 30 by that point when you're a free agent finally. But teams are not signing anyone 30 or over because we've just decided for again real reasons and maybe not so real reasons that we don't want 30 year old players. Um, that's a big problem for players, right? The, the money is not there like it once was. Players are going to want to find a way to get paid at an earlier age. And there's really no incentive for the owners to want that. That's a collision course. That's a major structural fundamental issue between the union and the league that the last time it was really talked about was when the owners and the commissioner had no idea what they were doing in negotiations. The players under Marvin Miller were uniquely um, solidified together and had unique focus. Um, again, that's monstrously huge. It could lead to a work stoppage. I, I, I don't know if I could handicap it right now, but I, I, you know, off the top of my head, I'd say we have 50-50 odds of a work stoppage because you're not going to get movement on that issue uh, without some serious strife. Let's turn to some of the play uh, on the field this year while we still have baseball. <laughs> well, we're about halfway through the season. Uh, what's kind of been the biggest surprise to you, either a team or a couple of players that uh, that have really stood out to you this this in this truncated uh, season? Well, I, I guess one surprise is the lack of surprise on a certain level. Everybody talked about, well, anything can happen in 60 games, and uh, everybody cited the Nationals starting at 19 and 31 last year in their first 50 games or something like that, but. You know, by and large, at the top of the standings, we don't have that much surprising, you know, 30 games in at the most. Uh, you know, everybody knew the Dodgers would be good, and they are definitely very, very good. Uh, Oakland has won, you know, 97, 98 games or whatever the last couple of years. They're in first place. The Twins, who won the division last year in first place, and, uh, you know, the Cubs, who are certainly very talented, are, are back in front. Uh, Atlanta won the division last year in the NL East. They're in front. And then the Raising Yankees are very close at top, and they're, they're the best teams. Now, that's superficial a little bit, but, you know, the, 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 the cream is rising to the top. Uh, a little more on the surprising side is just how good the White Sox have done. I think everybody knew they would take a step forward this year, but they're taking that step very, very quickly. Um, the, uh, the struggles that the Astros have had, maybe not so surprising if you know about their injuries uh, that have happened this year. 
but uh, you know they're 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 a step off. Um, and and certainly I think uh, you know no one cares about them so much. It's not like this draws passion. But I personally am kind of shocked at how terrible the Angels have been. Um, I think they're either at, they're, they're one of the worst teams in baseball so far this year. I think the Pirates might be the only team with a worse record than them. And, uh, you know, they made some big additions in the offseason. They signed Anthony Rendon. They tried to, to bolster and rearrange that pitching staff. They, of course, still have Mike Trout, the best player in the universe. And they're terrible again. So um, that does surprise me a little bit. But uh, otherwise, I, you know, I can't say that this is terribly shocking. A sixty-team, a sixty-game season would normally take us around to Memorial Day, I think, in in a regular year. And don't we all generally say what happens by around Memorial Day is pretty much what's going to happen in the season? That's when we know results are real. So, you know, in the end, this isn't going to be as illegitimate as a lot of people think. Yeah, it's been interesting. Like a lot of people said, oh, you know, maybe the Royals can make a run in a short season and, and surprise the people. And uh, you know, they've kind of played about as you know poorly as as you know we thought they would be at the beginning of the year and the the players have been good are the players we thought would be good and the players that have been bad are the players we thought and it's, it's inter- interesting how quickly players kind of reveal their true talent level uh even in, sh- in kind of a small sample size it, it, everything kind of settles and like you said the cream really does rise to the top so yeah maybe this will be maybe a more of a legitimate season than, than we, we we expect uh at least until we get to the playoffs and we'll see about that tell us about the cup nothing of- matters yeah <laughs> tell us about the cup of coffee newsletter and uh what what readers can find if they subscribe to it yeah, thank you. Um, so, yeah, I started uh, last week. I started a newsletter. I, I, I was at NBC Sports for 11 years and NBC downsized. And, hey, I was part of that. It happens. But uh, I still write about baseball because I love it. And I started this newsletter. It's a subscription newsletter uh, where every morning, uh, usually by 7 a.m. Eastern time, sometimes earlier, never much later than that, you'll get an email in your inbox every morning with recaps of all the games from the night before, a daily briefing that brings you up to date on all of the news around Major League Baseball that matters, along with my commentary about it, and then some fun stuff thrown in. And and the idea about that is, you know, not everybody has time. I I still remember back when I used to work in an office. I would log on in the morning, try to bring myself up to speed uh, uh, about what was going on in baseball, and then get on with my day. That's what this newsletter is designed to. When you read this thing at 7, 8, 9 in the morning, uh, you will know everything that you need to know until the games start that night. And uh, it's, uh, it's six bucks a month. Uh, $65 for your subscription, and uh, it's going to hopefully uh, put my kids through college. So, uh, cupofcoffee.substack.com. Yeah, I've, I've subscribed. It's nice to have that in your inbox uh, and just kind of catch up on the night's action and also just what's going on around baseball and with, you know, with some good commentary as well. And uh, so, I definitely would recommend people to subscribe and uh, get that in your inbox and uh, keep, keep up with what's going on in baseball. But, uh, Craig, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Max. All right. And joining me now is Sean Newkirk. Sean, you are finally an honest man now. Congratulations on your nuptials since last time we spoke. And uh, how's married life treating you so far? It's good, thank you. Uh, we couldn't, uh, you know, we couldn't afford to get Slugger out here uh, to the ceremony, unfortunately. So we had to had to settle with uh, the T Bones mascot, uh, whatever its name is. So. But it was good. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Marlon's man was there sitting in the... In oh, the yeah. Of course, he had the best seat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he had the best seat. Uh, also joining us is Matthew Lamar. Matthew, how are you doing? I'm doing I'm doing fine. I have no news that is nearly as exciting as that. Yeah, so we'll just We have a on. fully married, married men podcast now, right? Matt, you're yeah. married, right, Matt? Yep. 
Yep, yeah, so I thought. There we go. Yep. Uh, so, so ladies, I know there's a lot of women, you know, beating the door down uh, on this podcast, but uh, we're all married men, so sorry. Uh, well, let's talk a little about the Royals. It's been a while. Um, it's been an issue. The, the the offense has been an issue. Uh, they are second worst in the league at 3.93 runs scored per game, and contributing to that is how awful they are with runners on base. They're 738 OPS with runners on base is the third worst in the American League. And they are particularly bad with the bases loaded. So far, going into Monday's game, they are just 2-for-21 when the bases are juiced and have scored a total of five runs in those situations. Uh, you know, they have some other things that are, you know, kind of hurting the offense as well. They have the tied for the worst walk rate in baseball at 6.9%. They, they still strike out uh, higher than average. And uh, perhaps the most disappointing player so far has been Adalberto Mondesi. We'll, we'll talk more about him in a second. But, Sean... Just looking at this offense overall, I mean, we knew they'd have some problems going into the season, but what do you make of the offensive struggle so far, and do you expect them to to kind of re- rebound at all? Yeah, I mean, I thought we all kind of knew that the offense had some higher spot. I mean, had some brighter spots. Merrifield, obviously, Solaire, hopefully, to continue. Dozier was, you know, obviously out to start the year, but came back, but... I mean, I think I think you could have looked at the lineup and saw it was a lot of question marks. Um, and so, I mean, I don't think anybody expected them to have. I, I think it, I think someone pointed out with the bases loaded, they had a negative thirty three WRC plus, which would be a which would be a hundred and thirty three percent worse than league average. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we had an idea, I think we knew that it wasn't going to be a great offense, but uh, it's it, it's been rough, rougher than maybe expected. And I don't remember. Did the offense get off to a slow start? I think last year, I think I thought I remember last year getting off to a slow start too, then kind of picking up a bit. It seems um, like but, every year the offense gets off to a slow start. Yeah, I mean, was it 2017 yeah. where like they went? Yeah. in May they hit like 150 as a team or something like that. I mean, it's just ridiculous every year. And yeah. I thought maybe they would get over that this year because it's warmer weather, but right, that's what I can say. It hasn't yeah. really helped at all. Yeah, yeah, it's like in April because I mean at Coffin Stadium opening day it always rains, so it's like you know you figure okay it's just April, but yeah, I mean. It, they started smack dab in like the prime time to, to hit and it's just been bad. So, I mean, you, you know, I, I don't know what people were expecting necessarily. I was not expecting, you know, a great offense. Uh, they are currently excluding tonight. Uh, 94 WRC plus, um, which probably is mostly all going to be, you know, the higher end. It'll be Merrifield and then Sal Perez, you know, when he was on the field. And then, uh, yeah, Michael Franco has been, been – I think he's been somewhat surprising. At, he's at 104 WRC+. Plus. I think that's probably about right. That was that Chesler Cuthbert-esque as we were expecting or we kept kind of saying where Cuthbert had that for a little bit but then, you know, dropped off. Um, so, I don't know. It's been – there's been some surprising guys like that. Um, but, you know, for the most part, it's been – it seems like the guys that are coming up the bat have just kind of been brutal at times. Yeah, I'm just looking at uh, – Craig Brown had a nice article this week about – you know, had the problems with the bases loaded. And I don't want to put it on, the, you know, the bases being loaded because they've had some issues when the bases are empty as well. But, um, you know, they they're, when their bases are loaded, they've had 23 times that the bases are loaded. So they're not getting hits. That's one thing. They're only two for 21. But they're not even putting the ball in play and making something happen like sack flies or ground. But, like, they've struck out 10 out of those 23 times. That's 43% of the time they're striking out with the bases loaded. I mean, for a team that kind of prides itself on keeping the line moving and putting the ball in play and making something happen, I mean, they have horribly uh, fallen short in that category, at least in the small sample size we have of this year. But, but Matthew, you know, looking at this lineup, 
you know, like I said, we knew we'd have some problems, but aside from Mondesi, who have been some of the, I guess, bigger culprits on uh, as to why this offense is struggling so much? Yeah, I think um, there's there's a lot of culprits, uh, to be perfectly honest. Um, I do think the the bases loaded thing is is a little bit overblown. I mean, it's still a problem, right? But 20 plate appearances is really not a lot. Um, and, you know, pretty much anything can happen in any given 20 plate appearances. Um, you know, that's that's why you wait for hundreds of plate appearances for a given player to for it to stabilize. So, you know, I think that's just sort of like a blip of a small sample size. Um, you know, the effect of a small sample size. So, I mean, it's been frustrating, but I don't think that is specifically indicative of uh, a greater problem. But I do think that... Um, there, there are multiple culprits, really. Um, so I, one of my uh, tabs, uh, my favorites, um, in my web browser is a, a, a link to the Fangraphs uh, page of Royals batters, um, and I update it every year. Um, and it's, it's, it's a very cathartic feeling updating it for the new baseball season, which I didn't get to do until you know, <laughs> uh, July this year. Um, but I have it sort of um, where it's uh, every player with at least 10 plate appearances. So like the, the random players who get like a couple aren't on the list. Um, and 14 people uh, have had at least 10 plate appearances with the Royals uh, this season. And eight of them have an on-base percentage below 300, which is honestly imp- <laughs> like I'm not even mad. I'm impressed. That's it's kind of amazing. And um, four of them have an on-base percentage of below, like, 275, which is, you know, particularly bad. Um, I, I think Mondesi is obviously a big disappointment. Um, but, you know, again, we'll, we'll get to him later. I think the, the biggest disappointment uh, to me is probably um, Ryan O'Hearn, honestly, at this point. Um, you know, uh, he had a really great rookie season. Um, in uh, 2018, you know, he hit really well. Um, he had a, a bunch of home runs and not a very long, uh, you know, stretch of games that he was playing in. Um, and Royals fans kind of were like, okay, this guy could be just a diamond in the rough, somebody who, you know, came out of the blue a little bit. Um, but last year he was really not nearly as good. Um, and this year, you know, the hope was for O'Hearn to be more like 2018. Um, but it's sort of been more of the same. Um, which is a really low batting average. He walks a decent amount, but when you're hitting around 200, you know there's only so much you can do with with walking. Um, and his his power is just not there uh, so far. Um, and his exit velocity is down over the last couple of years as well. So I think you know when you're looking at the roster before the season, you can sort of say, okay, so Bubba Starling probably not going to be very good offensively. Alex Gordon, you know, may not. I expect a lot from him offensively. Nicky Lopez was so bad last year that you didn't expect him to be, you know, the second coming of, of uh, I don't know who, um, somebody who takes a lot of walks. Um, who, who's the the Red Sox catcher that I'm that I'm thinking of? The Greek cod of walks, Kevin Euclid. There we go. There we go. Uh, I mean, yeah. Or George Guitars. Come on. <laughs> That's true. Uh, former Royal George Guitars. Um, but. You know, when you when you were looking at the the group of players before the season, I think you could talk yourself into Ryan O'Hearn more than the rest of them. Um, and Ryan O'Hearn has been really bad. So, 
there's really no way around that that there um the the royals part of the royals problem is not just that they're not walking a lot um they do have a couple of guys with you know pretty good walk walk rates so ryan hearn's walking at a 9.4 percent clip brett phillips is walking at an 8.8 percent clip nikki lopez at 8.8 percent uh alex gordon at eight percent bubba starling is even at 7.7 you know those those are like you know, decent figures, not awesome, but but pretty decent. But the problem is they're hitting in like the low 200s, and it's just really hard to get on base a whole lot unless you're walking double-digit percentage um, if you're hitting that low. So really, it's just kind of this this perfect storm of of you know of of hitters. But you know, as I wrote, I I don't know how long ago, a couple weeks ago, I you know part of the Royals' problem is that they have a lot of filler. So, you know, you could argue that uh, Bubba Starling, Alex Gordon, um, even Mike Elfranco, uh, perhaps Brett Phillips, Ryan O'Hearn, Ryan McGroove, those are all guys who you wouldn't really expect to be necessarily long-term um, solutions at their positions, you know. So, I mean, that's that's the, the, the plus side of it, um, if you want to look at it that way. But it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't help when, as we're uh, – you know, writing this. Oh, hey, the Royals scored three runs just now. That's nice. But but you know, the the Royals have have not done well offensively, and it does not help uh, when you're watching the games to think, oh yeah, well these guys are going to be gone in a couple of years. You know, it's, it's still just as painful. Yeah, and, and and you mentioned some of the guys that are fillers here that aren't. You know, that could be just here for for temporarily until they find someone better and. You know, I think what is kind of disappointing is that you're, and it's it's just you know a couple of weeks of play, but you were kind of hoping that out of Ryan O'Hearn and Nicky Lopez and Brett Phillips and Bubba Starling, and Ryan McBroom, that maybe one or two of those guys would really take advantage. And I think McBroom probably has uh, emerged from that group as a guy that, um, is, uh, you know, through 50 plate appearances, will look pretty good. But you know, it's a little more disappointing, I guess, and no one else has. You know, all those other guys have played pretty poorly so far. Uh, and and I guess that maybe that just makes it easier to maybe move on from them next year if the team wants to uh, kind of accelerate the timetable and start start uh, winning more games next year. Uh, but but it would have been nice if they had developed maybe another player or two. And I don't think they'll necessarily like get rid of all those guys. But um, certainly the clock I think would be ticking on them and and getting off to a bad start this year doesn't doesn't help. You know you mentioned getting, the Royals getting a couple runs here against St. Louis tonight. I guess we should kind of keep in mind the Royals have only played like what four or five teams this year I mean we've seen the Twins a bunch of times we played the Indians we played the White Sox uh the Indians in particular have a great pitching staff the White Sox and Twins have pretty good pitching staffs I don't know if that has a factor in you know and and why the Royals are struggling offensively it might a little bit I mean I think we knew coming into this year that the Royals probably weren't that great offensively um but you know you you, you kind of hinted at Alberto Montes, and I did kind of want to save a, a bigger conversation about him. And you know, it's no it's no secret that he's been probably the most disappointing player for the Royals so far this year. Uh, going into Monday's game, he was hitting just 220 with a 243 on base percentage and a 290 slug with no home run so far. And you know, we know RBI aren't that big of a stat, but he's been particularly unclutch this year with just two RBI in 28 games. And with runners in scoring position this year, he's hitting just 120. Uh, and not only that, but he's, he's just looked really quite awful doing it. I mean, it's one thing to kind of hit the ball on the on the button and, and be unlucky. It's another thing to just kind of look, go out there and look lost at the plate, as he has at some points. 
Uh, Matthew, you, you wrote an article this week that it's time to lower our expectations for Mondesi. What caused you to reach that point? Yeah, so, you know, first of all, I, I, I haven't reached this point, you know, this this season. You know, I'm looking over at Mondesi's uh, overall big league career, and I think there are two numbers that really stand out. Um, so uh, since 2016, there are, are uh, 301 players um, in Major League Baseball who have accrued at least 1,000 plate appearances. Um, Mondesi's one of them. Um, and of those 301 players um, with at least 1,000 plate appearances since 2016, um, no one swings and misses at more pitches than Mondesi does. No one. Uh, he has a swinging strike rate of 19.4%, which means uh, all, almost one out of every five pitches he's thrown, he swings and misses at. That's that's really not good. If you look at the rest of the guys on that you know swinging strike leaderboard um, up at the top, you've got um, basically power hitters. These are guys who swing and miss because when they do connect, they hit it a long way. It's guys like uh, Miguel Sano, uh, Joey Gallo, um, or is it Gallo? I don't actually know. Gallo, 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 yeah, like Joey Gallo, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You've seen my cousin Vinny for anyone, anyway. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, the, so the other people with swinging strike rates, you know, up there um, are, you know, power hitters, and also the difference between Gallo and Mondesi is over one percent. So Mondesi's sort of on his own island, like way worse than everyone else. Um, and then you look at the second uh, statistic that I think is really ind- indicative of Mondesi's um, batting ability, and it's um, the ratio between how many strikeouts he gets and how many walks he gets. So Mondesi strikes out 29.8% of the time or has struck out 29.8% of the time in his career and has walked only 3.9% of the time. He has the uh, biggest strikeout to walk ratio out of anybody in baseball. So that means that he strikes out 7.64 times for every one time he walks. And that is... Uh, really not good. And he and Tim Anderson, uh, your, your boy, Sean, are sort of on an island there. Um, Adam Engel, who's the third, is six and a half, right? So almost, um, you know, over one strikeout per walk more than, than, than you know, the third place guy, uh, who is Adam Engel. So those two um, statistics, I think, highlight the biggest problem in Mondesi's game, which is ultimately that he's just not a very good hitter. He doesn't have a good command of the strike zone. He swings and misses a lot. He doesn't know when to take pitches. Um, he swings a lot of outside the zone. When he does make contact, uh, he hits ground balls at a 45% rate for his career, which is not like Eric Osmer levels, but that's pretty high. You know, you can't hit a home run if you're hitting it on the ground. Um, there are just... The, those statistics, I think, are indicative of a deeper fundamental problem with Mondesi, which is even though he is one of the most uh, exciting athletes in baseball, I don't think that's, you know, much, much of a claim. He's, he's very fast when he does make good contact. It's very impressive. Um, his max exit rate or uh, exit below this year, I think is like 111, which is like really hard. Um, he's, he just can't access his power and his speed because he's just not a good enough hitter or someone who understands the strike zone well enough. And I think that is really a fundamental problem that, um, you know, something that Mike Moustakas didn't really have when he was struggling with the Royals. 
um, you know, he walked more, he struck out less, he made more contact, and he eventually got to the point where he was making solid contact in the way that he wanted to. Um, but that's a totally different problem than Mondesi has, which is just he can't make contact with the ball and he doesn't command the strike zone at all. And those are, in my opinion, I think much more difficult things to remedy than just, you know, tweaking your swing a little bit, uh, in order to get more loft on the ball and in order to connect on the pitches that you want to. So I, I, I think that Mondesi can still be a productive player but i think thinking of him as a star is probably it's it's just too much you know i mean what stars do you think of that walk you know uh, that strike out six times as much as they walk and hit you know in the low 200s and just you know there are if you in order to be a star basically you need to hit much better than mondesi has in his career and this is over a thousand plate appearances and you know, at some point you just have to realize, you know, Mondesi is what he is in the offensive department. I don't think he's as bad as he is this year, but I don't think that he's a good hitter, and I don't really ever think that he's going to be a good hitter. Um, and that's that's really, you know, sort of problematic. Mondesi's entire value comes from, you know, base running and defense. And the thing is with those guys, you know, they could have some good years, but ultimately it's really hard for them to string, you know, a series of years together or even one year in which they're elite. Um, if, if, if you have such big problems uh, with such fundamental uh, factors of offense. Yeah, I, I guess I, when I think, when I think of the star player who does strike out a ton and walk very little, the only player that really comes to mind right now in mo- the modern game is Javier Baez. Uh, and and that's still kind of a rare... And even his numbers, I don't think, are like uh, super-duper great. Uh, you know, I you know he put up a, a, a really good 2018 season, uh, was not quite as good in 2019. Uh, we'll see how sustainable that is. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, we knew kind of his game was going to be difficult. It's it, You know, we knew that having a low on-base percentage was going to kind of cap how valuable he was going to be. Uh, Sean, in your mind, what is kind of the expectation for Adalberto Mondesi and, and his upside? You know, he's he's still just, what, 25 years old. Um, there was an article at Bleacher Report this week, a really good one, about how, you know, he's he's, had, he's still coming back from his shoulder injury. Uh, that played a heavy mental toll on him. The pandemic, you know, also played a little bit of a toll on him. Is this just a slump, or should we be deeply concerned at where his career is heading? I mean, I just think, like, you know, I I hate to put it this way, but making excuses for a guy that's now 25, which, again, which you're right, is not old. I wouldn't necessarily call it young, necessarily, but it's it's definitely not old. Um, Already has a 1,000 whatever played appearances, and just nothing's really changed. Um, he had that nice, I think it was 2017-ish, might have been like early 2018, um, where he had that nice run where he was an above-average hitter, uh, his O-swing was down, his contact percentage was up. It, it was exactly the kind of step forward you would want him to have, and then it, it, I tweeted out the graph. I mean, it just basically drops down. I mean, it, it reverts fully and even gets worse. So it's kind of like, yeah, I mean – like, you know, you you want to fall in love with the raw tools and you want to always kind of bet on those tools. But this is the same thing he's shown in the minors and he's shown almost no sustained improvement in the majors of being able to not swing at terrible pitches and when he does swing to make contact. Um, a, a, as Matt referred to, and I, I had another tweet about it today as well, that Moustakas, 
Mistarkis's issue was a quality of contact. He, you know, walked. I think he walked double what Montesi walks um, in their first whatever 277 games um, of their career, which is what Montesi's at. Uh, it's just completely different from a quality, or excuse me, a, a quality of uh, plate approach. Um, so I had mentioned as well that um, I think Jerkson Profar is kind of a good example of this where the Rangers called him up super early. He memorably homered on his, in his first, I think in his first at bat, um, or I think it was at least his first game. He, you know, he was the number one prospect slam dunk, number one prospect. Um, and the Rangers basically at the age of 25, um, he had a shoulder issue. I think upper far did, uh, that kind of kept him to the sidelines, never really allowed him to play a full season until, uh, really he played two half seasons. And then at the age of 25, he was healthy for 594 plate appearances and posted 2.8 wins. Um, but the Rangers were just like, you know what? We've seen you because his WRC plus all those other years were 60, 75, 75, 36. Um, so, I mean, he was a terrible hitter for all those years. And the Rangers just said, you know what? We just aren't. They just let him go. And then he signed with the Athletics and the A's let him go. Or didn't let him go. Let him walk into free agency. And then the Padres signed him. And he's been fine-ish for the Padres. But there is a time where you have to get rid of the prospect allure and you have to come to realize that, you know, this guy might be a failed prospect as hard as, you know, as sad as saying as hard as it might be to say sometimes for guys who particularly like Montessi, who are so athletically gifted. Um, and even like Bubba Starling, who's also fairly athletically gifted a thousand plate appearances into most MLB players careers. They don't all of a sudden figure out how to make better contact. Um, or excuse me, they don't figure out how to make more contact and typically stop swinging the balls unless unless it's an Eric Thames case where he goes to Korea and figures it out, then comes back over. Um, but that's a rarity. And you're you're thinking best cases, Mondesi can be Baez, but Baez walks the finest line between bad approach. <laughs> it's really bad approach, good outcomes. And it's just the it's the finest line because he's got a terrible swing and strike rate, doesn't walk at all, contact is I mean, it's a miracle that Baez is just so freakish with back control, which is what takes him away from what Monesi is. Monesi doesn't have that, that just ungodly bad control um, that Baez does, and that Baez is. If you wanted an example of a guy with a 70 bat speed, maybe 80 bat speed, that's bias plus control. It's just he makes it work, and that's a rarity. It's just like Joey Gallo, as Matt Lamar mentioned, that Gallo is terrible at the plate when it, when he tries to actually swing. But his walk rates are always more than 10%. I think he has like an outrageous 17 or 18% walk rate this year, um, and he just makes it work. But those are guys that are outliers, not examples, because there's been a history of guys with terrible walk rates and high strikeout rates that didn't work. And that's almost always the case. So I think at some point it, there needs to be a realization that, you know, it's probably not this year. It's probably going to have to be next year. But, you know, if July in 2021, Monesi is still getting on base at a 0.25 rate and batting 200 and, you know, having an OK slugging, it's like, OK, we got to start having conversations that he is not what we were hoping to be. And it's unfortunate, but I mean, you know, it's, it's a game in the end and you can't just keep giving, you know, not money, but you can't extend Montessi thinking like, Oh, he'll get better. No, you need to see that. And 
you're going to be taken away potentially from a guy like Bobby Witt Jr. in maybe two, three years from now. So I don't know. It's going to be a tough conversation. It'll be a sad conversation if it happens. But um, I, I think we're I think we're within a, week, a year of that conversation needing to be happening if nothing changes. Yeah, and I will say like he even if he's not hitting that well, like he still brings things to the table. Like he does play, you know, pretty good defense. Uh, yeah. Sometimes exemplary defense, and he does bring a lot of speed to to the table. And those do show up in his value as far as wins above replacement and what he does in winning ball games. So I I think even when he's not uh, hitting all that well, he's still contributing. Um, and so yeah. you know you know like it's not like he is a worthless player out there like uh, you know like Tony Pena Jr. at the end. Like he is still a good player, just maybe not you know, kind of like what Matthew was alluding to, like he's not the player maybe we thought he'd be. And I think you're kind of saying the same thing. Yeah. And if you look at like Javi Baez, um, if you, so 2016 Baez had a 94 WRC plus 6% below the average hitter was worth two wins. And I mean, that, that just goes to show how now Monis is a better fielder and a better runner, but that goes a baseline of, you don't have to be a great hitter to put up value. I mean, you can be, Baez, who was a below-average hitter, was a, a basically a league-average player with at 2.2 WAR, um, just solely because you know he was a good enough defender, decent enough base runner, made enough contact, uh, and you know posted a even though a sub uh, league average slash line, still did okay. So uh, you can get that out of honesty because that's what he had um, last year when he was worth I think two point something as well. It certainly wasn't because he was a great hitter. It was just because all he had to do was be a not terrible hitter. And unfortunately, he's been a terrible hitter in this year and prior years as well. He just that that's the thing is like, man, you don't even need him to be great. We just need him to be a little bit better than he is now. And it would work. So that's something that's a good thing, I think, in the sense of he doesn't have to make a gigantic improvement. He just needs to make some improvement and that will help out. Yeah, I, I think even looking at his numbers now, like even as disappointing as he's been, his number. I was taking a look at his numbers. They're very similar to Munieski Bedencourt uh, when he was with Kansas City. Which that may be kind of you may be thinking, oh, Munieski Bedencourt, but he was at, at, as a offensive shortstop just at the plate. Like he had some pop, uh, and then you combine that with maybe like so. You, so Monesi has like Munieski's bat plus Escobar's defense plus Dyson's you know speed. That's that's not a terrible shortstop. That's not a, an all star by any stretch. That's not even close. But that's that's a guy that's better than a lot of the shortstops they put out there over the last you know forty years. Um, but certainly, I think you, you with his skills, you're kind of hoping for something more than that. And you're right; if he does improve even a little bit, I mean that then you're starting to get into okay, solid above average starter territory. Um, so hopefully, he can get that uh, you know improve his, at the plate a little bit. I mean, I like it, it, I'm not going to expect him to become you know, a super patient hitter at the plate or anything like that. Um, but, it, you know, he can't be on the island he's on where he's just swinging and everything and posting walk rates just just far lower than anyone else in baseball because yeah. um, it's just, you know, the book's out on him. You can you don't have yeah, to throw anyone I mean, near the strike zone. Yeah, and he doesn't have to be – I mean, and as I've always alluded to, I think it's a good comparison between him and Tim Anderson and these shortstops that had flawed approaches but – um, you know, Anderson has made it work. Terrible walk rate, career 3.3% walk rate, um, 25% career strikeout rate, but he's a league average hitter. He just kind of makes it work. He's at 100 WRC plus for his career, been worth nine wins. Um, so, I mean, 
I, I think that, yeah, he, he just needs to make it work a little bit more than what he's doing now, and that's fine. Now, you know, even if he does become a two-win player, I still think they're, I still think the conversation needs to happen of how much can it be repeated and is it worth extending him? Because, I mean, I, how much do you want to bet on him sustaining? Let's say, let's say next year he figures it out, he's worth two wins next year, or even say two and a half. It's like, okay, like, is this going to keep happening? Can he repeat this? Or was this just a one-year thing? Because like I said, Profar put up, I think, whatever it was, a 2.8 win season. And the uh, Rangers just like, okay, thanks for your time. Uh, you can go to free agency. And so that's also another discussion I think that needs to happen if improvements do, improvements do happen, which I think we're all hoping they do at least. One yeah. person that uh, Mondesi reminds me of, um, and I, I think this is an interesting uh, sort of uh, thought process, um, is I think the Royals fans are hoping that uh, Mondesi is like Lorenzo Cain, right? I mean, Lorenzo Cain um, was never really an awesome hitter. You know, even in 2015, he hit 28% above league average, which was, you know, very good. But, you know, he... he for his career, he has hit 6% above league average, you know, somewhere between like 10 and 15% in his prime, you know, that, that sort of area. Um, I think Royals fans um, sort of want to think of Mondesi as like that kind of player, right? So Lorenzo Cain was super great at defense. Uh, you know, he was a really good base runner. You you know, he sort of forgot. He stole an awful lot of bases for the Royals during those years. You know, not as many as Montezay did, but, you know, Lorenzo Cain stole a lot of bases. He played great defense, and he was an above-average offensive performer. And he was, you know, he, he basically had about 19 uh, wins above replacement in a five-year period as a Royal. When I really think that Montezay is more like Billy Hamilton in that... Billy Hamilton and Mondesi are both very fast, right? They uh, Hamilton is certainly more like Mondesi on, on the base pads in terms of how much he steals and how good at it he is. Um, they're both really good defenders, and so they can create a lot of value on those two um, you know, portions of, of the, you know, plate, that's a terrible metaphor, but you get what I'm, you get what I'm saying there. They, they can create value at, out of base running and out of defense. But both Billy Hamilton and Mondesi have a sort of very crippling flaw at the plate that prevents them from getting to that Lorenzo Cain level, right? So for Billy Hamilton, it was power. He could never hit for any power, really. Um, and for Mondesi, it's it's plate discipline. He strikes out too much and he doesn't walk as much. But I think that – I think probably the realistic ceiling for Mondesi is somewhere along the lines of a, you know, peak Billy Hamilton, which is, you know, a couple of seasons where he gets close to three wins above replacement but generally hovers around a league average player for a five- or six-year uh, span. And that's a perfectly good player to have. You know, uh, we're seeing the effects of the Royals not having enough of those players right now, right? Um, they have a whole bunch of replacement level players on the team right now. What they really need is they need more league average players. And if Mondesi can be a league average player, you know, that's that's a good outcome. It may not be the best outcome given his his athletic ability, but it's a good outcome. And I think that if we just sort of reattune the expectations for Mondesi down to like, okay, yeah, he can be a good league average player, uh, you know, that's helpful to the team and sort of you know, forget him being the next Francisco Lindor, which I think is just really irresponsible to compare him to Lindor. Like that's, they're so different in terms of uh, offensive production um, and offensive skill set. 
you know, Mondesi can be the Royals' Billy Hamilton, and uh, I know the Royals did have Billy Hamilton last year, but, you know, peak Billy Hamilton, that's what Mondesi can be. And I think, and I wonder if there isn't uh, pressure within the organization for him to be the Lorenzo Cain player as opposed to the Billy Hamilton type of player, which he's more suited for. Yeah, I think he's definitely going to be, I think, one of the bigger projects for manager Mike Matheny and then hitting coach Terry Bradshaw on the entire you know hitter development side, uh, just getting him back on track. And, and I guess if you want to look at what, you know, I mentioned that he was kind of recovering from that shoulder injury. And that's kind of been, I guess, the knock on him the last couple of years. He's, you know, he's had trouble staying healthy. And you don't quite know what he's capable of because of all these injuries. But on the other hand, he's been hurt a lot. And that's kind of baked into what he is as a player. Uh, and, and that's kind of the, the knock on him. So, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. I mean, hopefully he can stay healthy and turn this thing around. You know, he's still young. 25 is not, like you said, it's not, not old. It's not really young anymore either. Um, I think the Royals have some time on him. But, um, but yeah, I think Sean's right. Once his contract's up and it'll be up before you know it, um, they're going to have some interesting uh, decisions to make on whether or not to extend him if he, hasn't, if he doesn't improve his game considerably here at this point. So, Let's turn to one of the bright spots on the team, and, and surprisingly, really, it's been the bullpen. And as we near the trade deadline, that has brought some teams sniffing around, interested in acquiring some Royals relievers, namely Trevor Rosenthal, who's done a really good job as Royals closer. He's uh, converted all six of his saves, uh, had an ERA below two, and, and his command has been excellent this year, um, at least better than it's been in the past, and he's continued to roll with a fastball in the high 90s. Uh, MLB.com reporter Mark Feinsand listed Rosenthal as one of his top trade assets at the deadline, and ESPN's Jeff Pe- uh, Passan said he might be the best relief arm available. However, it's not a foregone conclusion that the Royals will deal him, uh, even though he is a free agent at the end of the season. Dayton Moore told reporters, "We quote, we wouldn't hesitate adding to this to add to this team. This team is talented enough to be one of the eight teams representing the American leagues in the playoffs." And on MLB Network, he said, "quote We've asked our players to do a lot." Because of this pandemic, because of that, we believe they've earned the right to see this thing through. Now, Sean, we know that Dayton Moore likes to put out a lot of smoke screens, and there's some posturing going on this time of year. But what do you expect the Royals to do with Trevor Rosenthal at the deadline, and will they be active at all when it comes to the trade deadline, which is, by the way, now August 31st? Yeah, um, I mean, with Rosenthal, at least, like, the thing that I go back and forth when thinking about this is that if this were if this were a it feels like we're going to use this phrase a lot if this were a typical year and this year is very much atypical if this were a typical year um, you'd have Rosenthal you know it'd be it's August twenty fourth Rosenthal you know might have fourteen saves by now uh, you know would have pitched I don't know whatever you want to call it thirty innings twenty five innings something like that um, you know would would have been far far larger of a sample size than what he's at now uh where he's at i think 11.1 so an an, an inning in, or 11 innings in a third um and he was so bad with the uh the cardinals in his final year so bad with the nationals so bad with the tigers it's like very recently and then he had surgery in 18 um his he has had very little time to show that he's gone over, you know, how bad he was. Uh, and so I think in a normal year, you give someone a, a true full half season of doing something, uh, of rebounding, 
Yeah. Okay. I think that fetches could fetch actually a good return, even with the one year of control. Excuse me, the zero years of control. So the half a season of control left for him uh, when you trade for him. But man, you're really gonna have to be betting on. Let's say he gets traded August 31st and he pitches two more times. I mean, you're really gonna have to be betting on that the 14 or 13 innings that he's pitched. Uh, you know, between whatever the additional two or three innings between now and then are true of his skill level because. I mean, it's such a small sample size and giving up anything of quality for one, a very short track record and two, very short amount of control because, yes, it's technically still half a season, but it's only going to be about a month uh, that you'll have them. Plus, you know, if you make the playoffs. So I don't know. I I have no idea what the return is. Someone batted around um, the Padres as well. We've seen the Rockies. So, I mean, it's just kind of an interesting uh, combination, but uh, I truly don't know what it'll get, but I'm not expecting much just given that short track record and the weird amount of control remaining. I, I would hope to get like a 45 future value prospect and hopefully it's in it from a deep organization like the Padres where 45 value prospects are basically pennies for them. I mean, they they find those guys in the couch cushions for the Padres. So that, that would be great. Um, you also mentioned Max, you had heard some something with the Rockies, right? Or a someone had pitched the idea to you about a trade with the Rockies, right? Yeah, well, just a couple of other site managers um, had inquired about some Royals prospect or Royals players, and in particular, the Rockies site manager was asking if Jorge Soler would be would be dealt at the deadline. Which to which I said, I don't think there's any chance that he gets gets traded but they they seem pretty interested in him um i you know which is interesting because they're a national league team and while there is a dh this year um there's no guarantee there'll be one next year and uh so he'd have to play the field next year and since he's under contract for for 2021 uh so i don't know that he's a great fit there um but but that their site manager seemed willing to give up four uh players and i don't know a lot about their farm system but a couple of them were right in the top 10 of the organization so it was kind of an interesting deal, and I, I think Solaire, I yeah. think if you shopped him, he would generate at least some interest. I don't know if yeah. you'd get that much for him. And then uh, there's an article at Pinstripe Alley this week about how the, how much they really want to acquire Josh Dalmont, to which I don't think there's any chance of that happening, nor should it happen. No. Uh, but, but you know, it does show the Royals do have some assets out there. Uh, you know, Greg Holland could be a guy that gets dealt as well. I don't. Does it doesn't look like it looks like the ship has sailed for Ian Kennedy. I don't. I can't imagine he can turn it around. <laughs> the ship hasn't sailed for Ian Kennedy. It crashed into the ocean. It crashed into an iceberg in the yeah. ocean. Sailed is generous. Yeah. Um, but you know Rosenthal does seem like. I mean, he, he seems like the, the the guy that gets mentioned the the first in a lot of these. Uh, you know who's available with this trade deadline, which as you mentioned is going to be a really weird trade deadline. No one knows really how to value. One month of a player in a season, which we will probably have a postseason, and we don't know how legit this championship will be considered. Um, so I don't know. If teams are really going to go all in, and Dave Morris kind of alluded to that too. He doesn't expect there to be a great market out there, so he may just hold his cards. But Matthew Jeffrey Flanagan mentioned the possibility of the Royals holding on to Ken, uh, Trevor Rosenthal because they want to resign him, uh, mentioning that Rosenthal, of course, is from Kansas City. Uh, he uh, is a huge fan of how the team operates. Uh, but I don't know. It doesn't seem like that is necessarily the best reason not to trade him. What do you make of that uh, possibility? Yeah, I, well, there, there's a lot of things to, to unpack there, really. I, 
I it does not surprise me that the Royals, you know, don't trade Rosenthal. I mean, you could you could look at it and say, oh well, you know, they need to squeeze every ounce of value at it. But I, you know, as Sean said, I I'm not entirely certain that in this season you'll be able to get what you you could for him in a full season. Um, you know, they're going to be paying for thirty you know thirty days of Rosenthal, right? Plus you know whatever postseason um, you know play he gets you. Um, so I, I sort of understand that uh, just sort of standing pat, you know, keeping your your squad together for, you know, more holistic, uh, you know, team morale reasons, which is, you know, totally fine, um, considering the type of prospect you'd probably get back for for a guy like Rosenthal. Um, but I I think that extending Rosenthal is a very bad idea. Um but I also think it's pretty likely because one of Dayton Moore's worst traits as a general manager is um, landing on something and getting surprising value out of it and then just doubling down rather than just like getting in and getting out. Um, with this, this has happened time and time again. It's happened with Chris Young. Um, it's happened with Jeff Francoeur. Um, it, you know, he, he, he tends to do this where he gets a lot of value uh, for not a lot. And then it's like, yeah, I'm going to extend you. And then lo and behold, it doesn't work because of, of course not. Um, I think that extending Rosenthal would be um, like the Joaquin Soria signing, but worse because um, let, well, let's just put it this way. Uh, Rosenthal has an ERA of one five nine, which is really good. His FIP is four eleven, which is two and a half times that. And that is kind of a, a big warning sign. Uh, he has left 100% of batters on base. Like, he hasn't let a single, you know, inherited uh, runner score. Um, his batting average on balls in play is really, really low. So there's there's some underlying luck-based uh, factors into why he's allowed so few runs so far this year. And I think extending him... Extending any reliever who's 30 plus who has had major surgery um, is playing with fire, but it is right up Dayton Moore's alley, which is, you know, I like Rosenthal. I'm going to extend him because it's, you know, it's the right thing for both of us. And then whoops, it, you know, Rosenthal sort of falls off a cliff, you know, it's, uh, it, it's it's in the Dayton Moore playbook. So I fully expect them to um, at least consider extending Rosenthal, and I do not expect him to be good beyond this year. I'm sorry, Trevor, if you're listening to this. Um, if, you, if you are listening to this, take it as a challenge. Be awesome. Um, but I, I just don't think the general track record for relievers over 30 who have had major surgeries and giving them guaranteed money and guaranteed years, that's tends to be just a recipe for bad. I, I don't think Trevor Rosenthal listens to Royals Review Radio. He's not a big fan of the site right now. So, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I I think a lot of this is a smokescreen, to be honest. I, I Rosenthal, we know relievers are volatile, and I think it will be a bad reason for a lot of the reasons you mentioned. Also, if you if you really like Trevor Rosenthal and he, and he really likes how the team operates – I mean, trade him and sign him this offseason. I mean, it's like you're still allowed to bid on him this, you know, October, November. Um, you know, it, all it takes is a competitive offer, and he's a local kid, and if he really likes it here, he, he might even give you a little bit of a discount. But, uh, you know, I, I think probably the saving grace here is that Rosenthal's agent is Scott Boris, and he's coming off, you know, a major Tommy John surgery, and this is probably last, his last chance to – 
kind of cash in with a good contract. So I don't see him necessarily signing the first deal that comes on the table uh, that he'll probably try to test the market. On the other hand, if the Royals offer him something in September and he's like, well, I might blow out my, my arm again in the next couple of weeks. It might be nice to take that money. Eh, then maybe that, that, that is a consideration as well. So uh, we'll see. But yeah, it doesn't seem like a very good idea to extend him. I think the Royals should trade him even if it's, you know, even if it's not a great haul, which, you know, I think Sean, you, you say, you know, getting a 45 feature value player, I think it'd be pretty great. Baseball uh, trade values actually tweeted at us that, they expected a, either a 40 feature value hitter or two, two uh, 40 feature value pitchers, which uh, would be kind of roughly what the Royals got for Jake Diekman last year. Um, so not a great haul, but I mean, that's that fits into the long-term strategy more than having Trevor Rosenthal pitch for the Royals in September. Uh, if you guys had to predict right now, if the Royals make a trade uh, or they stay put, uh, by the trade deadline, uh, what would you what would you guess, Sean? Um, I mean, I guess it does depend on how the next six games go uh, before the deadline comes. Or I don't know if there's an off day between. Um, like a week ago, my answer would have been nothing. They weren't going to do anything because they were whatever it was two games out of the eighth seed. Um, but you know, they what did they drop three or four from the Twins, and they're on their way to losing to the Cardinals tonight. Um, and you know, I'm not sure tomorrow night it's going to look any better against the Cardinals. So I think they've gone from doing nothing to maybe moving some. Um, you can rule out, I think, anybody that's got control beyond two years at least. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it would be a Rosenthal, a Holland. Um, I would say I would, I would put the over-under at one and a half. So, and I would take the under on that. Um, so I don't think they're, I think they're going to move one player if they do. Um, but you know, what do you, what would you guys take in that over under? Well, I definitely under. take the under. Yeah. I don't, I think, yeah. I think it's, okay. it's Rosenthal or nothing most likely. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, I don't Matthew, what do you think if you had a guess right now, would you say they end up making a move or, or stay put? I bet that the Royals can talk themselves into them saying, oh, hey, we're just one good week away from, you know, the eighth spot, the eighth playoff spot. So I don't I don't think they're they're going to trade somebody. Again, if this was a normal year, I think they probably do trade somebody or maybe multiple somebodies, but it's not a normal year. So I, I don't think anything's going to happen. If anything, well, even even then, like, there are no minor league uh there's, I mean, you have the the people in the alternate sites, but there is a much smaller set of players that you can trade for, um, or that you would want to trade for because you haven't seen anybody all year. So I, I don't even know if the Royals are going to do like a Bride Goodwin esque trade or just like a random acquisition of some minor leaguer like Ryan McRoom or or whatever. Right? I don't think that the Royals are going to do anything. I, I'll say that they do make a trade for Trevor. Uh, they 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 trade Trevor Trevor Rosenthal just because. Uh, he's there's only a few guys that are that are going to be available, and I think enough teams will come calling that they'll they'll there'll be a decent offer, right? and the Royals will at least see the wisdom of of getting at least some minor leaguers for them, and maybe they'll bring back Rosenthal next year on a free agent contract. We'll see, but uh, we'll find out uh, by August 31st if the Royals uh, end up making a move or not. Uh, let's wrap things up with our Royals review reviews. Uh, Sean, I know you're. You got married, so maybe that's your your review. But were you able to recommend anything while you're uh, off getting uh, wed? Nothing stops me from watching movies and television. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I watched I watched this really good documentary called Boys State. Um, it's available on Apple Plus or whatever their subscription service is called. Um, it is a basically every year for the past I don't know 100 years or so. Um, various states, the gosh, what is it called? American Legion. Uh, the American Legion. I don't know if it's in every state, but at least it's in Texas. Um, they select a large swath of boys and a large swath of girls and. They basically they segregate them out, but um, they basically say you can run a fake government uh, for whatever a week or something, and like they they have primaries and generals for like the uh, the governor, the head of the party. They they create two parties. Um, it's just this really cool experiment, and there's been a ton of famous folks that have uh, gone through that. Obviously, a lot of them ended up being politicians. Um, I'm blanking on any of the famous names, but the documentary shows like five or six of them that are very famous politicians. Um, and so basically this documentary goes over the boys state, which is the boys version, the boys side of this experiment. Um, and it's just so cool. It's, it's basically a bunch of, you know, 16, 17, I think one kid's 18. Uh, but it's, you know, a bunch of juniors and seniors in high school, um, trying to run a fake government and really just trying to go through the whole process of state legislature. And it's just an amazing and it's scary even too, because it's in the heart of Texas and you can imagine the kind of uh, the, and I don't mean to, I'm not trying to get political on this, but you can imagine the kind of, some of the point of views that you'll have in the deep South of Texas. Um, And then you you're pitching them against people who, um, might not share those same views. So it, it's just amazing to see, uh, you know, one of the parties, and I promise not to spoil it, one of the parties, the Federalists, as they're called, um, they, they're basically, their head is kind of a Bernie Sanders type. Um, and then the, uh, the Nationalist, and it's a little, <laughs> it's a little bad name, but the Nationalist side um, is like a Donald Trump-esque where it's like, I know what these people want to hear. I don't care what my policies are. I know what they want to hear. I'm just going to go with those because I just want to get elected. And that's the whole goal of the thing. It's not even to like try to make any changes. It's just to get elected um, in this week. So it's a really, really cool documentary. Um, it's going to make you mad. You might even cry at the end because the the one of the characters is just so awesome. Uh, so it's called Boy State, available on Apple, T- Apple Plus. Um, it's amazing. Great documentary. Yeah, I saw that trailer. It looked really, really, really interesting to me, and uh, uh, I definitely want to check it out. And it's nice to hear a good recommendation for it. So, so thanks for that, uh, Matthew. What do you got first tonight? So this is an oldie but a goodie. Um, I recently figured out that uh, the first eight seasons of Whose Line Is It Anyway um, are <laughs> on HBO Max, and I know at this point um, it, it's probably old hat for for people who have who have seen it, you know, here and there, but. You know, beyond the uh, highlights that that get posted to YouTube, you know, it's it's just a really sort of lovely show um, with a type of uh, creativity that you generally, you know, don't see. And it's right, it's off the cuff. And I think that uh, that that type of improvisational humor is just really, it's really hard to do effectively. Um, and I think that show is just, you know, a really, it's it's a lot of fun. So if you, if you uh, are listening and you have not seen Whose Line Is It Anyway, you know, um, it's half an hour episodes um, where they do a handful of skits. Drew Carey's the host. Um, Wade Brady uh, is 
is in it, uh, among some other people, but he's probably the most famous um, regular guest. They've got a couple of episodes with some um, special guests. Um, they did, you know, because it aired like late 90s into the into the uh, mid to late aughts. Um, it had uh, Stephen Colbert uh, on an episode as, as one of the contestants, um, you know, before he, he made it big. Um, and uh, Robin Williams is is a contestant uh, on one of them. It's it's just even though like it's a late '90s, early mid 2000s show, and you can very much tell that by the outfits that everyone <laughs> is wearing. Um, it's really fun and it's sort of timeless humor because it's it's just all creativity, all made up on the spot. And uh, I, you know, to this day, even the revival of it, I don't think has sort of uh, captured the uh, sort of the specialness of that original series. So uh, it's on HBO Max, so you can watch them uh, every episode in the first eight seasons, which is an awful lot of, of comedy. And it's good, you know, bite-sized, you know, just, you know, got half an hour, you know, watch an episode, which I think is also something that um, you sort of miss in the modern um, serialized uh, TV, which is, you know, really great to get a hold of 10 episodes that are, you know, connected to each other. But um, there's just some sort of specialness in just like watching a snippet of, of funny stuff made by professional funny people. Um, and then just, you know, enjoying yourself in, in little 30 minute increments. And if you don't watch it for two weeks, you know, that's fine. You don't have to, for, you know, remember anything. You just watch another episode. I was going to say, and then the TV suits had to revive it on the CW a few years ago and they brought back Colin and Ryan and Wayne Brady for a little bit, but he left to do another show and it was just was so bad. Like it's, it's just them trying to recapture that the awesomeness that it was back in the nineties. And I think even the late eighties. Um, and then it's like, Oh, you know, it just wasn't quite as good. Uh, so anyways, I'm not even close. It was 98, 2004, but yeah, I just can't believe that they tried to reboot it. They did reboot it and it's just, nah, Took some of the luster away. So only watch the early ones, right, Matt? Don't don't worry about the ones that are on CW. Well, only the ones hosted by Drew Carey. Yeah, and I mean, if you have HBO Max, you only get it through season eight. So there the we revival go. is Good. not on it. Good. And, and I will say that um, the, the revival, the biggest problem with the revival is that um, they keep having um, uh, like guests on it to do uh, improvisational comedy and these were like celebrities and like I'm all, I'm all good for a celebrity thing here and there but they like built that into the format of the show where they would have that celebrity do these skits and I don't watch you know uh, improv- improvisational comedy from people who aren't like professionals at it like it's hard like if you're not good at it it's just not going to be funny and i think that is one of the core problems of the revival is that it doesn't let the professionals be professionals it's like oh hey Look at this famous person. Aren't are they funny for trying this? Haha! And it's, yeah. it's just not. It's just not the same. They uh, had Lance Bass on one of them. Yeah, as the I, guess. I saw that one. Yeah, Lance Bass yeah they didn't know what he was it. doing, and it, it just doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't work. Uh, I was just gonna say I, I have a lot of good memories of uh, Comedy Center. Used to like run marathons of it during the day, and I would come home from college uh, in between classes, and just like me and my roommates would just watch not only the early American version, but like the old British version, which is hosted by Clive Anderson, and yeah. actually had Colin Mockery and Ryan Stiles uh, before they uh, imported it to America. But, um, yeah, it's just fun. it's funny, funny stuff. A lot of the stuff, a lot of the, you know, there's some pop culture references every once in a while, but a lot of the stuff is just kind of timeless. Like, you could watch it in any year and, and still be pretty funny. Uh, and so, yeah, that's a good recommendation. I appreciate it. I didn't know it was on HBO yep. Max. So. 
Um, the opening guest to season 13 was Tony Hawk. I don't know why that why Tony Hawk is on there. But Comedian anyways, Tony uh, Hawk, sorry. right? Yeah. Uh, well, my review this week is I was out last week on vacation, which I highly recommend. Um, we traveled to the south uh, in North Carolina. We we made sure we did not uh, – we were in a house by ourselves. We all got COVID tests before. You know, it was with my family, my extended family. So we made sure we had COVID tests before, and uh, we – took all these precautions so don't worry about that but uh it was my first real, real trip through the south ever i've never really i've gone to florida but not through like north carolina and um my, i have a co-worker from north carolina he always talked about this restaurant called bojangles which so i you know i saw it's it's at every exit in north carolina and that's like not available anywhere outside of north carolina and so we stopped there and it is amazing it is so good it's a fried chicken restaurant and um I tweeted today, I was like, it's, it's, it's a crime that the South gave us Chick-fil-A and kept Bojangles to themselves because Bojangles is like a thousand times better. It's crispy fried chicken. It's juicy on the inside. It's got a little spice to it, so it's got a little kick. They've got great biscuits. The kids love the mac and cheese. Uh, so I am fully endorsing Bojangles. If, if Patrick Mahomes can bring Whataburger to Kansas City, uh, he needs to bring Bojangles next because uh, Casey has got enough great burger places. We don't really have a whole lot of great fried chicken places. Um, like, Go Chicken goes good, but it's not, you know, it, I don't think it would stand up to the south. Uh, so definitely, if you get a chance to try Bojangles in North Carolina, uh, they're everywhere, and uh, definitely take the chance to do that. And Patrick Mahomes, get on that. Uh, bring some good fried chicken to Kansas City. Well, that'll Next, do it. Oh, good. I was dying at that photo of that you took of you on the beach, looking like your dog just <laughs> passed away, and you're completely you're completely shaded. You might as well not have been outside because you're underneath like this canopy and you got a towel. I just singing like uh, you're not having the best time at the beach. I had a good time. It, it looked like you guys had a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a good time, and uh, it's another thing Kansas City needs. We need a we need a beach. Uh, I don't know if the, if Mahomes if he can work miracles. I don't know if he can bring a beach to Kansas City, but. Well, that'll do it for us this week. Uh, thanks again to Craig Calcaterra for being on, and don't forget to subscribe to his newsletter. And thanks to Sean and Matthew for being on the show. And many thanks to our readers and listeners for visiting our site, and we'll talk to you next time. Hey!